the burrowing process and for one animal isn't that big but when you cumulatively add up all of these animals burrowing it can damage the structural integrity of the structures. West Palm Beach's main water dam needs almost two million dollars worth of emergency repairs. The culprit? South Florida's invasive booming iguana population. From Florida Atlantic University's Davy campus, I'm Kiara Walker. And I'm Max Ziffer with South Florida Journal for the week of March 6, 2020. Also this week, Palm Beach County's sea turtle nesting season began Sunday on the heels of a record year for some species. We'll hear the latest on sea turtle research from a local expert. The nests are getting pretty darn hot, and if they get too hot, we have dead eggs. We'll have these stories and more on this week's South Florida Journal. But first, Tim Becker has some of the other stories making South Florida headlines this week. With news of the coronavirus making national and international headlines, a more immediate local health threat has received less attention. Last month, Broward County had to sanitize their high schools over a MRSA infection. After learning that some of the wrestling teams had contracted the bacteria, Broward schools took thorough measures to avoid an outbreak. Regina Kudrytseva has more. In February, Broward County High School spent hours cleaning their gyms, showers, and locker rooms to stop MRSA. To prevent the widespread panic, the school board advised students to maintain proper hygiene and cover any cuts. Florida Atlantic University biochemistry professor Predrag Kudik says MRSA could be especially dangerous. MRSA is particularly problematic because many antibiotics uh, don't work. Because this bacteria spread by touch, the schools also canceled the competitions for sports like wrestling and basketball. Western Broward High School coach Henry Jackson says his students' health comes first. If we let kids wrestle knowing that they may have something and we ignore it, then that's when we can get an outbreak. School administrators could not be reached for a comment. The Florida Department of Health will continue monitoring schools for potential complications. For South Florida Journal, I'm Regina Kudryavtseva. On Tuesday, the Florida House of Representatives declined Broward County's proposal to increase funding for school safety. After the Parkland shooting, the legislature required all schools to have a safety officer on campus. Lawmakers also appropriated funding to help cover the costs. Broward's proposal would have allowed Florida school districts to increase property taxes and hire even more safety personnel. Critics of the idea noted that Broward voters approved a tax increase in 2018 allocating more than $90 million a year for teacher pay raises, mental health care, and more security officers. This funding will last four years before renewal in 2022. Over 140 people have taken up a sprawling homeless encampment in Lake Worth's John Prince Park. In an effort to relocate the residents of Tent City, county officials have agreed to spend over $8 million to open a temporary shelter about 10 miles west of the park. The shelter, a former county stockade, would provide beds and resources for up to 125 people. However, concerns remain over the temporary fix. Tyler Doss reports. Lake Worth residents have aired their grievances over a homeless encampment in John Prince Park. In response, officials have given the okay on a temporary shelter west of the park. Andy Amoroso, vice mayor of Lake Worth Beach, feels that it is important to relocate those living there, but is adamant about providing further assistance. I stress that we need wraparound services. We need to address the mental illness. 
While those like Amorosa believe the shelter is in the best interests of the community, others don't quite see eye to eye. James Green, an attorney for the ACLU, argues that temporarily relocating individuals does not adequately address the problem. I would say that the whole approach by the county and the sheriff is short-sighted and, and misguided. Uh, the focus should be on, on permanent supportive housing, not temporary shelters. Palm Beach County plans to open the shelter sometime next month, with a max capacity of 125 people and over 140 currently living at the park the county will look further into addressing the homeless situation. For South Florida Journal, I'm Tyler Doss. The city of Fort Lauderdale is seeking a new way to address the growing homelessness problem. Under a proposed ordinance, homeless individuals would no longer be able to set up a camp within 1,000 feet of a school or child care facility. Violators could face up to 60 days in jail, as well as a $500 fine. Devin Simmons has more. Nearly 2,000 of Broward County's homeless population are seeking shelter in Fort Lauderdale. Within the city, homeless people often set up camps along sidewalks, in alleys, or other public spaces. However, with an increase in camps near schools in the downtown area, city commissioners have decided to revisit the current camping ordinance. Mayor Dean Trantalis shares his one major concern with the new proposal. In general, I'm just very uncomfortable with, you know, criminalizing homelessness. However, Commissioner Heather Moritis views the measure as a pragmatic response to a long-standing problem. I don't see this as a tool to arrest homeless people. I see it as a tool to remove them from camping near our schools. Fort Lauderdale's city commission is set to have a second reading of the ordinance on March 17th. For South Florida Journal, I'm Devin Simmons. On Tuesday, the Florida Senate unanimously approved a bill limiting punishment for individuals who miss jury duty. The measure follows an incident last year in which a Palm Beach County judge sentenced a juror to 10 days in jail for oversleeping and delaying court proceedings. Under the new bill, those who fail to show up for jury duty could face up to $1,000 in fines, three days in jail, and partake in court-ordered community service. It's unclear when the House will consider the proposal. Left-side driving is in the future for parts of Florida. The State Department of Transportation has confirmed that Boca Raton is considering adoption of their first diamond interchange on I-95. The diverging diamond is supposed to give pedestrians and drivers on heavily trafficked roads a better experience. However, driving on the wrong side of the road through the interchange could be difficult to get used to, with only a prominent red warning sign that the driver is driving the wrong way. Tiro Haga has the story. The rising South Florida population has forced cities to develop new ideas for their highly congested roads. Diamond crossings have assisted in major cities like Atlanta and might be the solution to the exit for I-95 on Glaze Road in Boca Raton. Andrea Pacini, a FDOT spokesperson for the project, says this solution will be positive because we aren't the first to test it. That has been the trend that more higher volume interchanges are time for an upgrade. They are being redesigned to a diversion timing interchange. It may help alleviate roads. It might be a bit confusing to drivers like Florida Atlantic University advisor Eric Seaman, a daily commuter. Now I'm going to be going left across the highway going west, which is going to be a little bit kind of like a mind trick to myself. I'm going to have to get used to it. The redesigned road is expected to be finished by late 2023. For South Florida Journal, I am Teril Haga. A professional video game organization is pledging to bring over 30 new jobs to Boca Raton. Early last month, 
Misfits Gaming Group, an esports team, announced plans to relocate their headquarters. The firm expects to invest more than a million dollars. In return, Misfits Gaming Group will receive state and local tax incentives. Zane Kermis reports. Misfits will invest over $1.3 million toward the new headquarters and will receive a conditional $200,000 in incentives from the state. Kelly Smallridge, president and CEO of the Palm Beach Business Development Board, says the company first must show it can generate revenue and create jobs. The state then evaluates the company, looks at the background of the company, makes sure they're completely legitimate, and then they assign a dollar award per job created. These requirements are meant to protect taxpayers from a repeat of the digital domain debacle seven years ago, when state and local incentives went to a company that later filed for bankruptcy. John Crakem, the vice president of Misfits Gaming Group, says that his firm will grow to meet the state's conditions. About how what our growth is going to look like, you know, it's, it's fairly accelerated to be able to provide the support for our teams that we need. CEO Ben Spoon says that the new headquarters will be opening next year. For South Florida Journal, I'm Zane Kermis. Those were some of the stories making South Florida headlines this week. I'm Tim Becker. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Kiara Walker. And I'm Max Ziffer. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Instagram and Twitter at SoFloJournal. And for behind-the-scenes footage and more, follow us on Snapchat at official underscore SFJ. Just ahead, Palm Beach County's sea turtle nesting season began this week. On the heels of a record year for some species, we'll hear the latest on sea turtle research from a local expert. But first... West Palm Beach's main water dam needs almost $2 million worth of emergency repairs. The culprit? South Florida's invasive, booming iguana population. The burrowing reptiles have caused structural damage. South Florida Journal's Addison Dumakenny has been covering the story. This week, he sat down with Gabrielle Brown and told her more. Thank you for joining us, Addison. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about what in the world is going on with these iguanas. So as most people know, iguanas are invasive species from South and Central America. They came to Miami originally and then they basically spread throughout the state through the waterways and other methods similar to that. However, with the rising temperatures, the population has just boomed because they're a cold-blooded species. So there was a cold front in 2010, right? The iguanas were falling from the trees. I think everybody kind of remembers that. Well, since then, the temperature has just been rising and rising. And for example, 2014 and 2015, there was a streak of about 18 months where it was under 50 degrees in Miami one time. And the iguanas lay about 76 eggs a year, and it's near perfect living conditions here in South Florida for them. So we'll say about half of those hatch each year. So let's move this back to West Palm Beach. The dam was already pretty old, needed repairs eventually anyway. However, with all these iguanas just burrowing because they live underground, they burrow underneath and they open all these new gaps in the soil and all that. And then the canals as well, same idea. It's caused the problem to be exacerbated, where these million-dollar repairs are needed today. It's also caused big damage in the residential neighborhoods, where if we have a tropical storm or a hurricane, canals could collapse. So I was actually able to speak with former scientists of the U.S. Geological Survey, John McLeod, and he was able to give a bit more insight into exactly how the iguanas could cause such problems. The burrowing process, and for one animal isn't that big, but when you cumulatively add up all of these animals burrowing, it can damage the structural integrity of the, the structures made to hold back tons and tons of water. So as you can see, as we both kind of mentioned briefly, 
these iguanas, all these numbers of iguanas are just the sheer numbers of hundreds and hundreds of iguanas just burrowing and burrowing has really caused this soil in this area to just become loose and where it could collapse at any moment. That's very interesting. How do West Palm Beach residents feel about this? Let me say, they definitely know that these iguanas are around. You know, you see them on the road as roadkill. You could see 20 iguanas in one yard. So they know they're a thing. Maybe not exactly what the iguanas can mean for their city and their infrastructure. For example, there's groups of people who actually fish for iguanas and then sell them live for 50 bucks a pop to, so people can eat the meat. In Puerto Rico, it's actually a big thing there. Iguana meat's actually a delicacy. Now, has the city made the dangers iguanas can pose known to the public? Not particularly. I mean, like I said, they know that they're around, but they don't really know the dangers in terms of what they could do with the dam, with the canals, with the infrastructure of the roads, really known. They're not necessarily hiding it like they don't want people to find out because you've seen in the news stories, but that's really the only way people really know what's going on. They're not exactly showing PSAs or delivering mail to them saying, watch out for iguanas. I was actually speaking with a West Palm Beach resident, Alex Gonzalez, and it was clear he had not heard anything about the issues the iguanas pose. I had no idea that they were causing any sort of damage aside from just um, eating fruits and um, food from people's backyards and whatnot. Interesting. How do residents deal with the iguanas? There's a few different ways to do it. Um, one of the main ways is you get an iguana trap, a live animal trap, where you just put like a mango or the fruit that iguanas might like. They mostly eat fruits like that. And you just keep it in there. The iguana will run in there and eat it because that's how iguanas get into your yard. They see the fruits and stuff. And so you could take them off site. You can let them go into the wild. And you can uh, euthanize them if you want. There's a couple myths out there. For example, CDs and trees people thought would like scare them off or something like that. That's not true. The iguanas will actually live around there. They might even start freestyle rap battling together. They do love music, I hear. But actually, going back to the killing, though, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission is urging residents to kill iguanas humanely whenever possible. But animal rights groups are urging for the safe removal of them. It's kind of a point of contention whether or not, for example, you used to be able to freeze iguanas. It was thought that they couldn't feel the pain, but they actually do feel being frozen. They feel that pain. So it's no longer legal anymore. So if you're going to kill them, it has to be humanely. But who's to say what's humane? Who knew iguanas could spark such a debate? Let's shift gears slightly here. How does the city plan on rebuilding the dam and protecting the canals? So they're going to use this material called geogrid. It's kind of like a carpet you lay out and it has little cells in it. And you can put it in types of different materials, being it soil or something similar to that. And uh, there's different types of geogrid for whatever you want like if you're using soil or if you're going to work on a different type of slope or on a side or something like that. And basically, it adds more surface area to the place, so a little more sturdiness in that area. Kind of just make sure it doesn't slide as much. Actually, uh, when they were building the 18-mile stretch in the Keys, they laid out the geogrid, and then they built on top of that, on top of the swampy, like, softer swamp lands there. And then also they'll plug up the iguana holes with tougher dig-into materials so that the iguanas can't get into their places when they come back and it will take them longer to get back in there. This, uh, the company that's in charge of this is Murray Logan Construction in West Palm Beach. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to reach Murray Logan for comment. However, I was able to speak with James Ryan and Mahmoud Faz, two senior bridge and roadway inspectors for WSP Global, another engineering firm. And Faz was able to explain a bit more how the geogrid would be used. We use geogrid on roadways uh, on top of embankment, and especially when we have sandy soil or some fine soil. And the intention not to remove the entire layer, just to keep some of it, so to improve, the, to prevent any slippage or uh, 
uh, create containment of that uh, embankment layer, we put the geo grid on top. The geogrid would be very useful in solidifying the structures and preventing future damage. I see. In the meantime, I hope everyone is prepared to deal with more iguana problems. Thank you for your time, Addison. Of course, Gabrielle. South Florida Journal's Addison Dumakenny telling us about the problem the city of West Palm Beach faces due to the invasive iguana species. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Kiara Walker. And I'm Max Ziffer. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Instagram and Twitter at SoFloJournal. And for behind-the-scenes footage and more, follow us on Snapchat at official underscore SFJ. Just ahead, Palm Beach County's sea turtle nesting season began this week. On the heels of a record year for some species, we'll hear the latest on sea turtle research from a local expert. But first, Tim Becker has a recap of some of the other stories we've been following this week. With news of the coronavirus making national and international headlines, a more immediate local health threat has received less attention. Last month, Broward County had to sanitize their high schools over a MRSA infection. After learning that some of the wrestling teams had contracted the bacteria, the faculty has been eager to prevent any backlash among students and parents. On Tuesday, the Florida House of Representatives declined Broward County's proposal to increase funding for school safety. After the Parkland shooting, the legislature required all schools to have a safety officer on campus. Lawmakers also appropriated funding to help cover the costs. Broward's proposal would have allowed Florida school districts to increase property taxes and hire even more safety personnel. And on Tuesday, the Florida Senate unanimously approved a bill limiting punishment for individuals who missed jury duty. The measure follows an incident last year in which a Palm Beach County judge sentenced a juror to 10 days in jail for oversleeping and delaying court proceedings. Under the new bill, those who fail to show up for jury duty could face up to $1,000 in fines, three days in jail, and partake in court-ordered community service. It's unclear when the House will consider the proposal. Those were some of the stories making South Florida headlines this week. I'm Tim Becker. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Kiara Walker. And I'm Max Ziffer. Palm Beach County's sea turtle nesting season officially began this week, but researchers actually reported seeing the first nesting sites as early as last Friday. According to Juno Beach's Loggerhead Marine Life Center, about 25% of Florida's sea turtle nests are laid on Palm Beach County shores. While the 2019 season saw record numbers across the state, not all species fared well. The leatherback turtle population has declined and loggerheads have merely remained stable. While thousands of hatchling sea turtles emerge from their nest each year, it's estimated that only a handful survive to adulthood. Nearly all species of sea turtles are classified as endangered due to water pollution, poaching, and climate change. Florida Atlantic University biology professor Jeanette Weineken's research focuses on sea turtles. Last year, Dr. Weineken sat down with Dr. Atta Sirajadini, dean of FAU's College of Science, and told him about her work. Thank you for joining us, Jeanette. Thank you much for having me. Please tell us what your research on sea turtles looks like and what you're looking to study in terms of their behavior and what we know about them. Okay, so I'm going to start by telling you a bit about sea turtles in Florida. Florida is one of the most important places in the world for sea turtle reproduction. The beaches in Florida provide a habitat for about 90% of all of the hatchlings that come out of the United States and about 85% of all of the loggerheads in the northern half of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a pretty darn important place. 
Uh, the second thing I want you to know is that sea turtles are like many other reptiles, and these animals do not have sex chromosomes. They have what's called environmentally determined sex, which means when an egg is laid, it's not a male or a female embryo. It's an embryo that can become either male or female depending on the environment of the nest. These nests are underground and they are not tended by the mom. They're not like a bird nest. Um, but what that means is that the sex ratios of each generation are determined by the weather. And as the weather changes, that's a big deal because if it's in the case of sea turtles, too warm, we get all females. If it's too cool, we get all males. Well, we're in South Florida, so we don't see too much too cool. How do you actually go about measuring the temperature of these nests to get the observations that you need? Well, that's a messy system. When I say messy, it means one part of the beach may get shaded earlier than another. One part might get rained on and another not and so on. So th those things really modify the incubation environment and certainly the temperature. It's a big deal to measure that. So we started off by determining that we could put little temperature monitoring devices, they're called temperature data loggers, inside the nest without influencing the hatching, without modifying the, the nest environment ourselves. And so we started doing that, and we record the temperature every 15 minutes throughout incubation. So we'll go out at night when the turtles are nesting in the late spring and summer, and if we're lucky enough to intercept a turtle while she's actually dropping her eggs, we can sneak our temperature data logger in while she's nesting. If not, the turtle leaves a pretty big track. You know, these are not tiny animals when they're adults. So we can follow those tracks and locate the nest and take out a few eggs with permission, of course, from the uh, permitting agencies and uh, put our temperature loggers in. And then we don't get them back for anywhere from a month and a half to up to three months, depending on the species and what part of the season it incubates in. So uh, th sometimes those are pretty big data sets. I'd like to know how you determine the sex of each of these turtles. We capture a small fraction of, the, of each nest that we've had uh, as a study nest, and uh, it's usually about 10 hatchlings. We bring them into the FAU Marine Laboratory, and we raise them until they're about the size of the palm of my hand. And at that point, they've used up all of their yolk, and there's uh, room to look inside, and we can see whether their gonad is an ovary or a testis. And then uh, we give them a little time to recover, and then they get a ride offshore, and they're, they, they get put out in their natural habitat. I see. And after those observations are taken, then you can produce a model that helps you better understand the effect of uh, nest temperature on the sex of the turtle. So how does the modeling of the nest temperatures and sea turtle sex ratios actually work? So the, the original models were based just on temperature. That's where the hot chicks, cool dudes comes in. But we've also discovered that that system was not as good at predicting as 
what we needed. So we started looking at other things that influenced the nest temperature, and rainfall ended up being a really big deal. And so my students and I have been now monitoring rainfall and its effect on nest temperatures, and it's actually its effect on how the egg uh, responds to temperature as well. And so our hypothesis of, you know, we that we thought we were going to be able to tell the managers that the uh, turtles are incubating at this temperature and we'll get this sex ratio, well, that's not quite as clean as what we thought. So we modified our hypothesis now. And, and so we now talk about hot, moist nests and hot, moist females and hot, moist males, because sometimes the nest may, might be a temperature you'd think would give females, but if it's moist enough, it can give us some males too. That's a really important thing to discover because, as we've mentioned, the, the weather events really modify the response of these uh, nests. And, um, and that's going to be really important as the climate is changing. Right. Now, Jeanette, you touched on the observation that the earth is warming up and that since the nest temperatures influence the sex of the turtles, what is the future then of the ratio of males to females among turtles as the earth warms up? There's a couple of things we've observed. And the first thing is that we're seeing more turtles nesting earlier in the season. It's not a big percentage, maybe about 10% are nesting earlier in the season than they used to. That may be due to ocean temperatures, we're not really sure at this point. And the second thing is we're seeing our nest temperatures get warmer and warmer and warmer. So unless we have a year with a lot of rain and a lot of clouds, the nests are getting pretty darn hot. And if they get too hot, we have dead eggs. And we've seen that for um, in 2015, 2016, and 2017. We saw a really big problem with the incubation temperatures getting too hot so that we not only did not see males from the natural nests, we saw high mortality in the eggs. So it was too hot. hot. So in terms of answering the, the question, well, what's the future of turtles? Um, these animals have been around about 230 million years. Well, there have been periods of what we call hothouse earth and periods of what we call icehouse earth. So the turtles as a group have, uh, many have gone extinct, many have persisted. There are some components to the lives of turtles that obviously have persisted and allowed them to persist for that many millions of years. The oldest species are about 100 million years old, and those animals, well, we'll have to see. It's not going to be a quick answer. The bottom line is that the species has lasted hundreds of millions of years, and somehow they have been able to adjust to the changes in the Earth's climate over that time period. Some of the species have been able to adjust to the climate, whether it's moving to a cooler place, nesting at an earlier part of the season, or their embryos and their reproductive physiology may have some plasticity that we have yet to understand. I think our listeners would love to know more about your research being performed at the FAU Gumbo Limbo Marine Lab. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my favorite topics. So, yes, the... Uh, the FAU Marine Lab is located uh, on, on A1A in Boca Raton. The address is 1801 North Ocean 
Boulevard. We're there seven days a week. The FAU Marine Lab is one of the components of the Gumbo Limbo Environmental Complex. So FAU has a big presence there. Uh, and we have a visitor's gallery so people can come through, look down on our science, see what we're doing, and not only us, but several other investigators doing other kinds of science in the marine systems, and uh, talk to our students and talk to us, and we uh, welcome visitors to talk to us. Uh, It's a great opportunity. It's a great facility. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Professor Weineken is in the biology department at Florida Atlantic University. You've been listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Kiara Walker. And I'm Max Ziffer. South Florida Journal is a joint production of Dr. Kevin Petrick's broadcast and advanced broadcast journalism classes in FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. Hi, I'm Gabby Gleitman. I'm Tim Becker. I'm Tyler Murillo. And I'm Devin Simmons. And And we're we're your South South Florida Florida Journal producers. And here's the rest of the crew. This is Beatrice Silva with my fellow assignment editors. Hey, I'm Zane Kermis. And I'm Brianna Yagos. Our script gurus are... Kiara Walker. Sierra Mercer. And Max Ziffer. But let's not forget about social media. Stay connected and follow us at... South Florida Journal! Thank you for listening. And join us again next Friday at noon on Owl Radio.